This is the Darkest Page Podcast. None of us, I imagine, slept very heavily or continuously that morning, for both the excitement of Lake's discovery and the mountain fury of the wind were against such a thing. So savage was the blast, even when we were, that we could not help wondering how much worse it was at Lake's camp, directly under the vast, unknown peaks that bred and delivered it. McTie was awake at ten o'clock and tried to get Lake on the wireless, as agreed, but some electrical condition or the disturbed air to the westward seemed to prevent communication. We did, however, get the Arkham, and Douglas told me that he had likewise been vainly trying to reach Lake. He had not known about the wind, for very little was blowing at McMurdo Sound despite its persistent rage where we were. Throughout the day, we all listened anxiously, and tried to get Lake at intervals, but invariably without results. About noon, a positive frenzy of wind stampeded out the west, causing us to fear for the safety of our camp, but it eventually died down, with only a moderate relapse at 2pm. After 3 o'clock it was very quiet, and we redoubled our efforts to get Lake. Reflecting that he had four planes, each provided with an excellent shortwave outfit, we could not imagine any ordinary accident capable of crippling all his wireless equipment at once. Nevertheless, the stony silence continued, and when we thought of the delirious force the wind must have had in his locality, we could not help making the most direful conjectures. By six o'clock, our fears had become intense and definite and after a wireless consultation with Douglas and Thorfinson, I resolved to take steps toward investigation. The fifth aeroplane, which we had left at McMurdo Sound Supply Cache with Sherman and two sailors, was in good shape and ready for instant use, and it seemed that the very emergency for which it had been saved was now upon us. I got Sherman by wireless and ordered him to join me with the plane and the two sailors at the southern base as quickly as possible the air conditions being apparently highly favourable. We then talked over the personnel of the coming investigation party, and decided that we would include all hands, together with the sledge and dogs, which I had kept with me. Even so great a load would not be too much for one of the huge planes built to our special orders for heavy machinery transportation. At intervals, I still tried to reach Lake with the wireless, but all to no purpose. Sherman, with the sailors Gunnison and Larson, took off at 7.30 and reported a quiet flight from several points on the wing. They arrived at our base at midnight, and all hands at once discussed the next move. It was risky business sailing over the Antarctic in a single aeroplane without any line of bases, but no one drew back from what seemed like the plainest necessity, 
We turned in at 2 o'clock for a brief rest after some preliminary loading of the plane, but were up again in 4 hours to finish the loading and packing. At 7.15am January 25th, we started flying northwestward under McTie's pilotage with 10 men, 7 dogs, a sledge, a fuel and food supply and other items including the plane's wireless outfit. The atmosphere was clear, fairly quiet and relatively mild in temperature, and we anticipated very little trouble in reaching the latitude and longitude designated by Lake as the site of his camp. Our apprehensions were over what we might find, or fail to find, at the end of our journey, for silence continued to answer all calls dispatched to the camp. Every incident of that four and a half hour flight is burned into my recollection because of its crucial position in my life. It marked my loss, at the age of 54, of all that peace and balance which the normal mind possesses through its accustomed conception of external nature and nature's laws. Henceforward the ten of us, but the student Danford and myself above all others, were to face a hideously amplified world of lurking horrors which nothing can erase from our emotions, and which we would refrain from sharing with mankind in general if we could. The newspapers have printed the bulletins we sent from the moving plane, telling of our non-stop course, our two battles with treacherous upper air gales, our glimpse of the broken surface where Lake had sunk his mid-journey shaft three days before, and our sight of a group of those strange, fluffy snow cylinders noted by Amundsen and Bird as rolling in the wind across the endless leagues of frozen plateau. There came a point though when our sensations could not be conveyed in any words the press would understand, and a later point where we had to adopt an actual rule of strict censorship. The sailor Larsen was first to spy the jagged line of witch-like cones and pinnacles ahead, and his shouts sent everyone to the windows of the great cabined plane. Despite our speed, they were very slow in gaining prominence, hence we knew that they must be infinitely far off, and visible only because of their abnormal height. Little by little, however, they rose grimly into the western sky, allowing us to distinguish various bare, bleak, blackish summits, and to catch the curious sense of fantasy which they inspired as seen in the reddish Antarctic light against the provocative background of iridescent ice-dust clouds. In the whole spectacle there was a persistent, pervasive hint of stupendous secrecy and a potential revelation. As if these stark, nightmare spires marked the pylons of a frightful gateway into forbidden spheres of dream and complex gulfs of remote time, space and ultra-dimensionality. I could not help feeling that they were evil things, mountains of madness whose further slopes looked out over some accursed, ultimate abyss. That seething, half-luminous cloud background held ineffable suggestions of a vague, ethereal beyondness, far more than terrestrially spatial, and gave appalling reminders of the utter remoteness, separateness, desolation, and eon-long death of this untrodden and unfathomed austral world. 
It was young Danford who drew our notice to the curious regularities of the higher mountain skyline. Regularities like clinged fragments of perfect cubes which Lake had mentioned in his messages, and which indeed justified his comparison with the dreamlike suggestions of primordial temple ruins on cloudy Asian mountaintops, so subtly and strangely painted by Rorik. There was indeed something hauntingly Rorik-like about this whole unearthly continent of mountainous mystery. I had felt it in October when we first caught sight of Victoria Land, and I felt it afresh now. I felt too another wave of uneasy consciousness of Archean mythical resemblances, of how disturbingly this lethal realm corresponded to the evilly framed plateau of Leng in the primal writings. Mythologists have placed Leng in Central Asia, but the racial memory of man, or of his predecessors, is long, and it may well be that certain tales have come down from lands and mountains and temples of horror earlier than Asia, and earlier than any human world we know. A few daring mystics have hinted at a pre-Pleistocene origin of the fragmentary narcotic manuscripts, and have suggested that the devotees of Sothugwa were as alien to mankind as Sothugwa itself. Leng, wherever in space and time it might brood, was not a region I would care to be in or near, nor did I relish the proximity of a world that had ever bred such ambiguous and archaean monstrosities as these Lake had just mentioned. At the moment I felt sorry that I had ever read the abhorred Necronomicon, or talked so much with the unpleasantly erudite folklorist Wilmarth at the university. This mood undoubtedly served to aggravate my reaction to the bizarre mirage which burst upon us from the increasingly opulescent zenith as we drew near the mountains and began to make out the cumulative undulations of the foothills. I had seen dozens of polar mirages during the preceding weeks, some of them quite as uncanny and fantastically vivid as the present sample. But this one had a wholly novel and obscure quality of menacing symbolism, and I shuddered as the seething labyrinth of fabulous walls and towers and minarets loomed out of the troubled ice vapours above our heads. The effect was that of a cyclopean city of no architecture known to man or to human imagination, with vast aggregations of night-black masonry embodying monstrous perversions of geometrical laws and attaining the most grotesque extremes of sinister bizarre. There was truncated cones, sometimes terraced or fluted, surmounted by tall, cylindrical shafts here and there, bulbously enlarged and often capped with tiers of thinnish, scalloped discs, and strange, beetling, table-like constructions suggesting piles of multitudinous rectangular slabs, or circular plates or five-pointed stars, with each one overlapping the one beneath. There were composite cones and pyramids either alone or surmounting cylinders or cubes, or flatter truncated cones and pyramids, and occasional needle-like spires in curious clusters of five. All of these febrile structures seemed knitted together by tubular bridges crossing from one to the other at various dizzying heights, and the implied scale of the whole was terrifying and oppressive in its sheer giganticism. 
The general type of mirage was not unlike some of the wilder forms observed and drawn by the Arctic whaler Scoresby in 1820. But at the same time and place, with those dark unknown mountain peaks soaring stupendously ahead, that anomalous elder world discovery in our minds and the pall of probable disaster enveloping the greater part of our expedition, we all seemed to find it a taint of latent malignity and infinitely evil portent. I was glad when the mirage began to break up, though in the process the various nightmare turrets and cones assumed distorted, temporary forms of even vaster hideousness. As the whole illusion dissolved to churning opulescence, we began to look earthward again, and saw that our journey's end was not far off. The unknown mountains ahead rose dizzyingly up like a fearsome rampart of giants their curious regularity showing with startling clearness even without a field glass. We were over the lowest foothills now, and could see amidst the snow, ice and bare patches of their main plateau a couple of darkish spots which we took to be Lakes Camp and Boring. The higher foothills shot up between five and six miles away, forming a range almost distinct from the terrifying line of more than the Himalayan peaks beyond them. At length, Ropes, the student who had relieved McTie at the controls, began to head downward toward the left-hand dark spot whose size marked it as a camp. As he did so, McTie sent out the last uncensored wireless message the world was to receive from our expedition. Everyone, of course, had read the brief and unsatisfying bulletins of the rest of our Antarctic sojourn. Some hours after our landing we sent a guarded report of the tragedy we found, and reluctantly announced the wiping out of the whole lake party by the frightful wind of the preceding day, or of the night before that. Eleven known dead. Young Gedney missing. People pardoned our hazy lack of details through realisation of the shock the sad event must have caused us, and believed us when we explained that the mangling action of the wind had rendered all eleven bodies unsuitable for transportation outside. Indeed, I flatter myself that even in the midst of our distress, utter bewilderment, and soul-clutching horror, we scarcely went beyond the truth in any specific instance. The tremendous significance lies in what we dared not tell. What I would not tell now but for the need of warning others off from the nameless terrors. It is a fact that the wind had wrought dreadful havoc. Whether all could have lived through it, even without the other thing, is gravely open to doubt. The storm with its fury of madly driven ice particles must have been beyond anything our expedition had encountered before. One aeroplane shelter, all it seems had been left in a far too flimsy and inadequate state, was nearly pulverised, and the derrick at the distant boring was entirely shaken to pieces. The exposed metal of the grounded planes and drilling machinery was bruised into a high polish, and two of the small tents were flattened despite their snow banking. Wooden surfaces left out in the blast were pitted and denuded of paint, and all signs of tracks in the snow were completely obliterated. It is also true that we found none of the archaean biological objects in a condition to take outside as a whole. We did gather some minerals from a vast tumbled pile including several of the greenish soapstone fragments whose odd five-pointed rounding 
and faint patterns of grouped dots cast so many doubtful comparisons, and some fossil bones, among which were the most typical of the curiously injured specimens. None of the dogs survived, their hurriedly built snow enclosure near the camp being almost wholly destroyed. The wind may have done that, though the greater breakage on the side next to the camp, which was not the windward one, suggests an outward leap or break of the frantic beasts themselves. All three sledges were gone, and we have tried to explain that the wind may have blown them off into the unknown. The drill and ice melting machinery at the boring was too badly damaged to warrant salvage, so we used them to choke up the subtly disturbing gateway to the past which Lake had blasted. We likewise left at the camp the two most shaken up of the planes, since our surviving party had only four real pilots, Sherman, Danforth, McTie and Ropes, in all with Danford in a poor nervous shape to navigate. We brought back all the books, scientific equipment and other incidentals we could find, though much was rather unaccountably blown away. Spare tents and furs were either missing or badly out of condition. It was approximately 4pm after wide plane cruising had forced us to give Gedney up for lost that we sent our guarded message to the Arkham for relaying, and I think we did well to keep it as calm and non-committal as we succeeded in doing. The most we said about agitation concerning our dogs, whose frantic uneasiness near the biological specimens was to be expected from poor Lake's accounts. We did not mention, I think, their display of the same uneasiness when sniffing around the queer, greenish soapstones, and certain other objects in the disordered region. Objects including scientific instruments, aeroplanes, and machinery both at the camp and the boring, whose parts had been loosened, moved or otherwise tampered with by winds that must have harboured singular curiosity and investigativeness. About the 14 biological specimens we were pardonably indefinite. We said that the only ones we discovered were damaged, but that enough was left of them to prove Lake's description wholly and impressively accurate. It was hard work keeping our personal emotions out of this matter, and we did not mention numbers or say exactly how we found these which we did find. We had by that time agreed not to transmit anything suggesting madness on the part of Lake's men, and it surely looked like madness to find six imperfect monstrosities carefully buried upright in nine-foot snow graves under five-pointed mounds punched over with groups of dots in patterns exactly like those on the queer, greenish soapstones dug up from the Mesozoic or Tertiary times. The eight perfect specimens mentioned by Lake seem to have been completely blown away. We were careful, too, about the public's general peace of mind. Hence, Danford and I said little about that frightful trip over the mountains the next day. It was the fact that only a radically lightened plane could possibly cross a range of such height which mercifully limited the scouting tour to the two of us. On our return at 1am Danforth was close to hysterics, but kept an admirably stiff upper lip. It took no persuasion to make him promise not to show our sketches and the other things we brought away in our pockets. Not to say anything more to the others than we had agreed to relay outside and to hide our camera films for private development later on. So that part of my present story will be as new to Parbody, McTie, Ropes, Sherman and the rest as it will be to the world in general. Indeed, Danford is closer mouthed than I, 
for he saw, or thinks he saw, one thing he will not tell even me. As all know, our report included a tale of a hard ascent, a confirmation of Lake's opinion that the great peaks are of Archaean slate and other very primal crumpled strata, unchanged since at least middle Comanchean times. The convention commented on the regularity of the clinging cube and rampart formations, a decision that the cave mouth indicates dissolved calcareous veins, a conjecture that certain slopes and passes would permit of the scaling and crossing of the entire range by seasoned mountaineers, and a remark that the mysterious other side holds a lofty and immense super plateau as ancient and unchanging as the mountains themselves, 20,000 feet in elevation, with grotesque rock formations protruding through a thin glacial layer and with low gradual foothills between the general plateau surface and the sheer precipices of the highest peaks. This body of data is in every respect true so far as it goes, and it completely satisfied the men at the camp. We laid our absence of 16 hours, a longer time than our announced flying, landing, reconnoitering and rock collecting program called for, to a long mythical spell of adverse wind conditions, and told truly of our landing on the farther foothills. Fortunately our tale sounded realistic and prosaic enough not to tempt any of the others into emulating our flight. Had any tried to do that, I would have used every ounce of my persuasion to stop them, and I do not know what Danforth would have done. While we were gone, Parbody, Sherman, Ropes, McTie and Williamson had worked like beavers over Lake's two best planes, fitting them again for use despite the altogether unaccountable juggling of their operative mechanism. We decided to load all the planes the next morning and start back for our old base as soon as possible. Even though indirect, that was the safest way to work toward McMurdo Sound. For a straight-line flight across the most utterly unknown stretches of the Aeon-dead continent would involve many additional hazards. Further exploration was hardly feasible in view of the tragic decimation and the ruin of our drilling machinery, and the doubts and horrors around us, which we did not reveal made us wish only to escape from this austral world of desolation and brooding madness as swiftly as we could. As the public knows, our return to the world was accomplished without further disasters. All planes reached the old base on the evening of the next day, January 27th, after a swift non-stop flight, and on the 28th we made McMurdo sound in two laps, the one pause being very brief, and occasioned by a faulty rudder in the furious wind over the ice shelf after we had cleared the Great Plateau. In five days more the Arkham and Miskatonic, with all hands and equipment on board, were shaking clear of the thickening ice field and working up Ross Sea, with the mocking mountains of Victorialand looming westward against a troubled Antarctic sky, and twisting the wind's wails into a wide-range musical piping, which chilled my soul to the quick. Less than a fortnight later, we left the last hint of polar land behind us, and thanked heaven that we were clear of a haunted, accursed realm where life and death, space and time, have made black and blasphemous alliances in the unknown epoch since matter first writhed and swam on the planet's scarce cooled crust.
Since our return, we have all constantly worked to discourage Antarctic exploration, and have kept certain doubts and guesses to ourselves with splendid unity and faithfulness. Even young Damforth, with his nervous breakdown, has not flinched or babbled to his doctors. Indeed, as I have said, there is one thing he thinks he alone saw, which he will not tell even me, though I think it would help his psychological state if he would consent to do so. It might explain and relieve much, though perhaps the thing was no more than the delusive aftermath of an earlier shock. That is the impression I gather after those rare, irresponsible moments when he whispers disjointed things to me, things which he repudiates vehemently as soon as he gets a grip on himself again. It will be hard work deterring others from the great wide south, and some of our efforts may directly harm or cause by drawing inquiring notice. We might have known from the first that human curiosity is undying, and that the results we announced would be enough to spur others ahead on the same age-long pursuit of the unknown. Lake's report of those biological monstrosities had aroused naturalists and paleontologists to the highest pitch, though we were sensible enough not to show the detached parts we had taken from the actual buried specimens, or our photographs of those specimens as they were found. We also refrained from showing the more puzzling of the scarred bones and greenish soapstones, while Damforth and I have closely guarded the pictures we took or drew on the super plateau across the range, and the crumpled things we smoothed, studied in terror, and brought away in our pockets. But now that Starkweather Moor party is organising, and with a thoroughness far beyond anything our outfit attempted, if not dissuaded, they will get to the innermost nucleus of the Antarctic and melt and bore till they bring up that which may end the world we know. So I must break through all reticences at last, even about the ultimate nameless thing beyond the mountains of madness. Thank you for listening to the Darkest Page podcast. This has been At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft. This episode was made possible by the support of the librarians of the Darkest Page, Alex Smith and Tonks. To see how you can support the Darkest Page podcast, please visit patreon.com forward slash the darkest page. I have been your host, and I wish you pleasant dreams. <laughs>